0: Seth has served as the senior minister at Shawnee Trail since January 2008. Before coming to Shawnee Trail, he ministered at the Mayfair Church of Christ in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and the Memorial Road Church of Christ in Edmond, Oklahoma. Seth also served as the campus minister at Oklahoma Christian University for two years. He is a graduate of Oklahoma Christian University, earning a Bachelor's of Science in Bible and in Ministry in 2000, and a Master's of Arts in Family Ministry in 2003. Seth has been married to Katie since 2002, and they have three children, Macy, Charlie, and Emma. Brother? Well, good evening. It is really great to see you tonight. Thank you for being here tonight, and thank you for letting us be here tonight. Uh, Katie and my son Charlie and I are delighted to be with you. We have two daughters one that is at camp with some of your kids this week, and one who's working at Camp Deer Run this summer and um, we love this church. Uh, We love what you have done in the community, what you're doing in the kingdom, and we love what you have done for us as a church. And we're so thankful for the church at McDermott Road and for all of you. So thank you for letting us come tonight to spend a few minutes with you. I want to kind of continue the theme that you have had on Wednesday nights through the summer called an encouraging word. And I might maybe take it a little bit of a different direction, but I want to begin by telling you the story of a 34-year-old professor of literature. On July the 2nd, 1863, he was placed two-thirds of the way up a hill, and he was told, whatever you do, do not leave this place. Now, on that particular morning, he was not working as a professor. He was a colonel in the Union Army. And he wasn't a colonel because he had vast military experience. He was a colonel because he was the first person in his little town to volunteer. That's literally how it worked. And so they told him, whatever you do, do not leave this spot. The enemy is going to try to breach our line through you. And if they get through you, they will get behind us. And then it'll be a downhill charge and they will wipe us out. And so they said to this man, Joshua Chamberlain, you are the extreme left edge of a line of 80,000 men leading into Gettysburg. So Chamberlain took his men and they spent the entire morning building up a rock wall. And at 2.30 in the afternoon, they took the first charge from the 15th and 47th Alabama. Chamberlain and his men of the 20th Maine pushed the charge back down the hill and The 15th and 47th Alabama charged again and again. And on the fourth charge, Chamberlain took a bullet dead center. And it knocked him on his back and he realized he wasn't actually hurt. The bullet had hit his belt buckle. So he got back up and continued fighting and they pushed them down the hill again. They'd started the morning with 300 men. Now they had 80 men. And no ammunition left. So Chamberlain's brother, Tom, came over and he said, we're leaving, right? And Chamberlain said, no, Tom, we're not going anywhere. And then the old battle sergeant, Tozier came over and said, sir, should I sound the retreat? And again, Chamberlain said, sergeant, we will not retreat. But sir, we are out of ammunition. And Chamberlain said, well, then have the men gather ammunition from the dead and wounded. And Tozier said, we did that last time. We're out. And about that time, reinforced Confederate regiments with a rebel yell again came up the hill. And everybody looked at Chamberlain of what he was going to do. And Chamberlain said, Fix bayonets. And they looked at him like he was crazy. And so he yelled it Fix bayonets. And up and down the line, you could hear steel on steel as men put knives on their empty weapons. And then Chamberlain turned to Tozier and he said, Sergeant, have the men execute a great right wheel. Swing the left first, do it now. And Lieutenant Melcher, the flag bearer, had just walked up and he whispered to the sergeant, what is a great right wheel? And Sergeant Tozier said, it's an all-out charge. This crazy man means to charge. And before anybody could argue with him, Chamberlain jumped up on the wall and he swung his sword down the hill and he yelled, charge, charge, get him. And he jumped off the wall and down the hill and those 80 men poured over that wall and into history. Because those 80 men, 80 men with no ammunition, captured over 400 of the enemy. Now that moment is just one of many moments that speak to why the North ultimately won the Civil War. Colonel Joshua Chamberlain was an inspirational leader whose presence encouraged his men to do what was seemingly impossible to do. On the day of judgment, when Satan bows at the feet of Jesus and acknowledges him as Lord, there are a lot of questions that I would like for Satan to answer. And one of them is this, how did the first century church do the seemingly impossible? I mean, how did that first century church spread the gospel in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth? I mean, after all, the first century church certainly didn't have the numbers. I mean, they were very small when when they first started out on the day of Pentecost sharing the message of Jesus. And they certainly didn't have the finances. Most of those who were part of the early church, they would have been considered lower class at best. They certainly didn't have the education. Most of those that are mentioned in Scripture were were common rather than the educated, minus just a very few. They didn't have the influence. They were not the kind of people that society looked at as great change agents. And they certainly didn't have the talent. They were not trained public speakers or marketing experts. And so listen, Satan, how did they do it? Why in the world were you unable to bring this movement to its knees long before it got out of Jerusalem? And I wonder if Satan perhaps would at first respond with a little bit of irritation. he say, it's not like I didn't try. I mean, I threw everything I could at them. I worked at them on the outside by creating a hostile environment that threatened to take their life if they didn't quit telling about Jesus. And I worked on the inside by tempting disciples to make ungodly decisions and to hang on to ungodly attitudes that would discredit their message. Well, sure, Satan, you tried that. But why couldn't you stop God's people from fulfilling his call on their life? It seems like that would have been well within your power to accomplish. And I don't know what Satan would say, but I wonder if he might answer like this. I couldn't stop the church because of the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit acted, I was powerless to do anything about it. And I couldn't stop the church because of the passion of the people. By and large, those early disciples, man, they were single-minded. They didn't allow anything to stand in the way of spreading the good news about Jesus. And I couldn't stop the church because of the presence of an encourager. It seemed like every time I had a victory in hand, the smoke would clear, and there would be a disciple whose presence would encourage the rest of the believers. Now, obviously, there were many in that early church whose encouraging presence helped the rest of the unbelievers. But in the book of Acts, one in particular is identified for his encouraging presence. It's a guy, a Levite, from Cyprus by the name of Joseph. Now Joseph, in fact, was such an encouraging presence that Scripture primarily refers to him as the nickname that was given to him by the early church. That name was Barnabas which literally means son of encouragement. Now the word encourager comes from the Greek word paraclete. In the first century military world, a paraclete was a roving soldier that would hang behind the lines. And as soon as the enemy broke through in a particular spot, the cry would go out for the paraclete. And he would come running to their side. And oftentimes the presence, the encouraging presence of that paraclete would strengthen the rest of the troops to do the seemingly impossible, to stave off the enemy. And evidently, that's the role that Barnabas played in the early church. So often when the smoke cleared from battling Satan, there would stand Barnabas, extending words and actions of encouragement. He was the type of person who was always ready to come running anytime time the cry for assistance went out, always encouraging Always affirming, always convicting, always refreshing. In Acts chapter 11, the cry is sounded for assistance from the church in Jerusalem. And once again, we see the encourager graciously responds. Look at Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Luke writes, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, if you'll recall, the stoning of Stephen resulted in the scattering of Christians. All of the disciples, with the exception of the apostles, fled the city of Jerusalem. And in Acts chapters 8 through 11, Luke shares some highlights about the incredible things that these scattered Christians were able to do by the grace of God, even spreading the gospel all the way to Antioch. Well, when word gets back to the church in Jerusalem that the gospel has spread all the way to Antioch, they decide they want to send Barnabas to the church there. And let me suggest two reasons why that may be the case. I think first, perhaps they wanted confirmation that reports they were receiving from a person they absolutely trusted were were true. And secondly, I, I believe that there's no doubt that Satan would launch a full-scale attack on that church in Antioch in an attempt to, to stop any further advancement of the gospel. And so the church in Jerusalem sent them a paraclete. Now, the church in the 21st century needs encouragers just as much as the church in Antioch needed in the 1st century. Because Satan hasn't given up the fight. And when the battle is raging and the smoke is thick, there is the need for the presence of a paraclete, for an encourager to inspire the church to stave off the enemy and advance the cause. And so what I want to do tonight, continuing this theme of an encouraging word, is I want to make some observations based on the life of Barnabas about characteristics of of godly encouragers. And in this passage in Acts chapter 11, we we find five things. So let me run through them as, as quickly as I can. The first thing we see about godly encouragers is that they rejoice with others. They rejoice with others. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch to check out the situation for himself, what does he find? Well, Luke records that Barnabas saw the grace of God. And how exciting it must have been for Barnabas to locate the believers in that city and to share with them this news, the reason that I'm coming here is because the news of your success in sharing the gospel of Jesus has gotten all the way back to the church in Jerusalem. Perhaps he said, you know, when I heard all of the good that was taking place in this city, I just had to come take a look at it for myself. And perhaps the leaders of the Antioch church responded, oh, Barnabas, we're so glad that you've come. Listen, we're going to go worship in Luke's house tonight. Scholars believe Antioch was where Luke was converted. Why don't you come with us and you'll see a glimpse of all that God is doing. And as Barnabas attends that worship service, he witnesses two distinct evidences of the grace of God. The first is unity. The Antioch Church is a place where those who who are diverse, both racially and culturally, come together as one, united by the blood of Jesus. But he also sees transformation the church in Antioch is a place where those who had been living pagan lifestyles are now pursuing holiness. And so he learns of the grace of God every time one of the leaders in the Antioch church leans over to him and says, Hey, you see that guy over there by the window? He used to be the most unethical businessman in the whole city. Now he's a new man in the marketplace. And Barnabas, you see that woman sitting over there in the front? She used to be a prostitute at the temple of Daphne. But after giving her life to Christ, she's cleaned up not only her own life, but she's helping other women do the same. And I love the reaction of Barnabas when he arrives in Antioch and he sees for himself the evidence of God. Acts 11, verse 23, it says, When he came and he saw the grace of God, he rejoiced. That's what an encourager does when he witnesses the grace of God being poured out, he rejoices. She smiles from ear to ear. He hugs. He high fives. She can't wait to tell others. I experienced that just this past weekend. I was at a conference up in St. Louis, and I ran into a guy that I hadn't seen for several years, a guy that I really look up to, and he's a guy that we had called several years ago when we were planning to plant the church up in Salina. And we called him for some advice and some guidance. And when I saw him, we greeted each other. And then very quickly, he said, tell me how things are going with the church plan. And I filled him in a little bit on what was happening. And he said something that in my mind, I registered, that's a weird way to say that. This is what he said. He said, oh, Seth, can I take just a moment to rejoice with you? And then he did. He spent like the next minute or two just talking about how happy he was to hear what God was doing there. And it was unbelievably encouraging to me. Now on the flip side, it can absolutely take the wind out of your sails when a Christian fails to rejoice with you in those moments when God's grace is poured out, right? What he could have done Is he could have said, well, you've had a good first year and a half, but you know, statistics tell us that most church plants don't last three years. So let's see how the next 18 months go. And that would have been an accurate statement, but it would have been incredibly discouraging for him to say that to me in that moment. Listen, you want to be a great encourager? Then rejoice with others in every small victory that displays God's grace. For example, when a person that you know struggles with a particular recurring sin shares with you that they have gone a a week without giving in to that temptation, man, give them a hug. Give them a big old toothy grin. Tell them how happy you are for them. Don't say, well, yeah, that's great, but let's see if you can do it for another week. When a fellow Christian shares with you that they finally got up the nerve to invite a friend to church, let them know how proud you are of them instead of saying, well, let's see if they show up on Sunday. When people are baptized into Christ, sing a song of praise to the Father on the way home from church instead of immediately breaking into a discussion of how long the sermon was that morning. Now, I'm not suggesting we should ignore problems or put our head in the sand on reality. What I am suggesting is that great encouragers enthusiastically rejoice every time there is a victory in Jesus Christ. Another thing that we learn from Barnabas is that godly encouragers challenge others. They challenge others. The city of Antioch was the third largest city in the empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It was noted for its culture and commerce since many Roman trade routes passed through that city. Um, The Roman author Cicero said it was a place of learned men and liberal studies, and it was also a vile place. It was a place of pagan worship and sexual immorality. In fact, the Temple of Daphne, a place of prostitution, was just five miles away. In other words, this congregation in Antioch was right in the heart of the enemy's territory. And so what does this great encourager do? Well, look again at verse 23. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's grace, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. The encouragement of Barnabas was an exhortation. It was a call. It was a challenge. A challenge to what? Well, it was a challenge first to persevere. I have no doubt that in this particular environment, the temptation would be very strong to just throw in the towel and go back to the world. So Barnabas challenges them to remain true, but it's also a challenge to wholeheartedness. I have no doubt that in this environment the temptation would be strong to adopt some of the culture along with Christianity, kind of walk both sides of the fence, and so Barnabas challenges them to remain sold out to Jesus Christ with all of their heart. And if ever there was a time that we needed great encouragers to rise up and challenge the church to remain true and wholehearted, it's right now. You may be familiar with George Barna. He's kind of the George Gallup of the religious world. He did a number of polls and extensive research on the lifestyle of Christians. And after that research, here's what George Barna concluded. that the average Christian does not live a life that's all that different from the average unbeliever. His research revealed that many Christians watch, read, and listen to basically the same material that unbelievers do. That they conduct themselves sexually and that they promote and support sexual behavior in in the same manner as most unbelievers do. That they have a similar commitment to marriage, to work ethic, and to honesty as most unbelievers do. And what Barna's research really indicates is that Christians are trying to fight the battle with Satan. Half heartedly, if, if they're even trying to fight at all. We desperately need encouragers to rise up and challenge us to live out the call of God do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. The church needs parents who will challenge their teens to live completely sold out to Jesus. And the church needs children who will challenge their parents to live completely sold out to Jesus. And the church needs elders who will challenge their flock to live completely sold out to Jesus. And the church needs members who will challenge one another to live completely sold out to Jesus. Listen, there is no sin in conducting the battle so close to the pit of hell that you can smell the smoke. In fact, I would argue that's where we ought to be. But when the smoke clears... Let's make sure we're still fighting. Number three, Barnabas shows us that godly encouragers involve others. Godly encouragers involve others. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Barnabas proves himself not only to be a great encourager, but also to be a man of great humility. Instead of selfishly clutching to his ministry, he involves Saul in the work, which isn't too surprising because those two things, humility and encouragement, tend to go hand in hand, right? In fact, an inability to encourage often stems from an inflated or a threatened ego. Not only that, those who have an inflated or threatened ego usually refuse to involve others. And I'll tell you why, for two reasons. Number one is because the person believes the only way to do a job right is to do it themselves. That's an inflated ego. The other reason is the person is scared to death that if somebody else gets involved, their value will be diminished. That's a threatened ego. But you see, by involving Saul in the ministry that's going on in Antioch, many People were encouraged. I have no doubt that Saul was encouraged by the invitation. Saul had had a hard time. And the congregation, I'm sure, was encouraged by his ministry as well. And so let me encourage those of you that were involved in some type of ministry here at this church to always be looking for ways to involve others. Because it'll encourage them. And let me encourage those of you who aren't involved to get involved because this congregation will be encouraged by what you have to share. Fourth, godly encouragers sacrifice for others. One of the primary reasons that the early church nicknamed Joseph Barnabas had to have been because of the encouragement they received from his willingness to sacrifice on their behalf. In Acts chapter 4 we learn that Barnabas was willing to sacrifice his money for the aid of the church. In Acts 11 we learn that he's willing to sacrifice his time and energy. And what we see in chapter 11 is first he makes the extensive journey from Jerusalem all the way to Antioch. Then he makes the journey from Antioch to Tarsus which is about a hundred mile journey. And then once he arrives in Tarsus, the language in the text indicates that he had a difficult time locating Saul. The original language, the word look for, suggests a long and laborious search. So he put in the work to look for Saul. Then he goes back to Antioch with Saul, spends a year there, and then makes the journey from Antioch back to Jerusalem to deliver a collection from the Christians in Antioch. Look at verses 27 through 30. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea, and they did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. One of the greatest sources of encouragement in any battle is the willingness to sacrifice all for the cause. In his book, One Crowded Hour, Tim Bowden tells the story of an incident that happened in 1964 when Britain was fighting on behalf of Malaysia against Indonesia. And a group of Gurkhas from Nepal were asked by the British officers if they would be willing to jump out of transport planes to fight with them against the Indonesians. And it wasn't an order, it was a request. They had every right to turn down the request because they had never been trained as paratroopers. And the Gurkhas first told them no. But they came back 24 hours later and they said, listen, we will jump out of those transport planes for you and we'll fight against the Indonesians with you, but we have two conditions. And the British officer said, well, what are your conditions? And they said, well, our first condition is if you're going to drop us out of transport planes, we want to be dropped over soft, marshy land with no rocky outcrops because we're not very experienced of falling out of planes. And the British officer said, well, we're dropping you into Indonesian jungles. You don't have to worry about that. And then the Gurkhas said, well, we have one more request. We want you to fly very slowly and no more than 100 feet off the ground. And the British officer replied, Well, we can't fly 100 feet off the ground. We'll fly as low as we possibly can, but there must be time and airspace for the parachutes to open. And the Gurkhas said, Parachutes? You didn't say anything about parachutes. We'll jump out of anything with parachutes. They thought they were just going to jump out of the plane. Can I let you know that in the battle with Satan, it's those who are willing to jump without a parachute that encourage my spirit. Those who jump without a parachute in their financial giving to support ministry because they have faith in God. Those who jump without a parachute in their comfort level by stepping out to share their faith because they have faith in God. Those who jump without a parachute in their time by making God the priority of their schedule instead of making Him the one that's the first to be taken out of their schedule. Those who jump without a parachute in their pursuits by choosing God as their priority instead of work or school or, or other activities. This week I was up at a conference. One of my heroes in the faith was there. He's planted one, two, three, four, five churches and is getting ready to do another next year. And What I learned from him that I never learned is that in 20, 2004, when he was my age, He went to plant a church making $22,400 a year, 45 years old with two kids, because he had faith that God would take care of Godly encouragers sacrifice for others. Finally, Barnabas shows us that godly encouragers teach others. Look again at verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. One of the greatest sources of encouragement for any people who are at war with Satan is the teaching of God's word. And I was reminded of that great truth this past weekend. This guy I just mentioned, I I got to listen to him preach. He's one of my favorite all-time preachers. And it was a Thursday night. I'd driven up to St. Louis, and I was tired. I was in the back row, and about halfway through the sermon, I remember thinking, I didn't realize how much I needed this. I didn't realize how much my spirit needed to be renewed. And after that weekend of incredibly powerful biblical teaching, man, I was encouraged, and I was ready to get right back into the fray of the fire. God's word must be taught because it brings peace to those who are stressed from the fight, hope to those who are despondent in the fight, joy to those who are saddened by the fight, and strength to those who feel too weak to fight. And I'm willing to bet that many of you in here this evening are gifted teachers. So let me encourage you to use that gift as often as you can because I assure you it is a great encouragement to this church. And I'm so thankful and I'm so encouraged by those people who share their gift with children Man, nothing pleased me more as a father than my kids would come home excited about the things of God because, because of what their teacher taught them in Sunday school. And I'm Encouraged and thankful for those who share their gift with teens, whether it's in a Sunday morning or Wednesday night class or a Bible study or whatever it is, because the fight with Satan in our high schools is intense. And every time you share the word with them, you prepare them for battle. And I'm thankful and encouraged by those who share their gift with adults in a Sunday morning class or a a Wednesday night class, because it's encouraging to see people who are so excited because of the truth of God's word that's been shared with their hearts. Now, let me assure you that Satan will work overtime to try to keep you from sharing that gift. He will whisper in your ear that you don't have the time or the energy. And I know that there are certain times in life when that may be the cause, but those times ought to be the exception rather than the rule. God's people need you to teach because when you teach, you renew us and you re-energize us and you get us ready for battle. As we wrap up, let me take you back to that hill at the Battle of Gettysburg. 80 men, no ammunition. Take 400 soldiers prisoner. One great story. A couple of minutes after They charged down the hill. Joshua Chamberlain walked past a private who was standing guard over a hundred men with a rifle that had nothing in it. And he tells Chamberlain, I don't have any ammo in my gun. Chamberlain says, well, don't tell them. (laughs) (laughs) That moment changed the direction of the war and I believe changed the future of our country. And years later, a song was written about the leader of the battle. And in it, the soldier sings this, I'd march to hell and back for Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Can I let you know that that's exactly where Jesus has called us to charge. But the battle has caused some of us to cower. Jesus told us the gates of hell would not prevail against us. And so the church needs great encouragers to sound the call and to lead the way to victory. And may God use you and may God use me to speak an encouraging word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have blessed us with people like Barnabas, who is an encourager. And so, Father, may we be built up by those people. May we be encouraged to to fight the fight and to continue the charge against Satan and to reach the lost people of this world. But, God, may we also take on that responsibility of encouraging one another through our words, through our actions, through our teaching, through the way we rejoice and challenge Father, may we build others up so that you will be glorified and the battle will be won. And it's in Christ's name we pray.